Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. Oklahoma is known for having the highest incarceration rate of women, and America is known of having the highest incarceration rate of people in the world. In this episode, Jonathan interviews lawyer Jill Webb, and they discuss mass incarceration and its potential correlation with the Word of Faith movement. Enjoy. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Son of a Preacher Man. We're in Will's studio in Tulsa, and I'm so happy we have a true local rock star with us today in Jill Webb. Lawyer and local rock star. Are you okay with this? this I'm definitely a lawyer. I definitely. (laughs) That part is true. I can confirm that. (laughs) But we're really, um, Jill is a fascinating person, and I'm so honored that you take the time out of your busy schedule to come and hang out with us. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's, it's, it's a privilege for us. I hope this isn't jumping um, off into the deep end too quickly, but there's so much I want to talk about, so many things I want to ask you. One thing I would, um, it was, as I was telling you, we were catching it before, I have this kind of eclectic church background, hillbilly Pentecostal, as I say, slash Episcopal now, also very shaped by the black church and my experiences there. Uh, you know, I was uh, just a couple months ago, I got to spend some time with my friend Otis Moss III at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. And given how much, especially my friends in those spaces have influenced how I think about faith and specifically then faith and culture and faith and politics. I loved an interview I read with you where you talked about your story of being at this African-American church in Chicago and having a kind of calling is is it okay to jump like right there because sure. i'm so intrigued by that story so what what happened is i the first time i ever went to a, an african-american church i was jeez 35 um i was raised catholic and i'm a unitarian so it's a very stoic logical quiet kind of faith that i was used to so i go in there and the music is fantastic there was probably 300 congregants and all of them hugged me it was it was very it was radically different than what i was used to but during the sermon the preacher was talking about redemption and she said uh, raise your hand if you love somebody in prison and every hand in that church went up except for mine and my friends and we were the only two white people in there and if you had asked that in my unitarian church hardly a hand would go up because the church that I was going to, especially in Chicago, was almost all white. And it, man, it just got to me in that moment where everything came together, where those hands were raised. I realized that their relationship with the world, just because of that question, was fundamentally different in many ways than mine. Their relationship with authority, with police, with the government, with safety, with the people that they loved. Like every one of them had a person that they loved that they couldn't connect to anymore. You know, whether that was their father or their child or their, I mean, their mother, those sorts of things, that sort of loss, like I lost my mother when I was eight, um, that sort of loss, I just can't even imagine how much pain that that represented. And I just sort of felt the enormity of that in the moment. And then she said, keep your hand up if they have a good lawyer. And nearly every hand went down. And I felt called. Like I, I, you know, I'm, I don't even remember if they did an altar call. I guess they did, but I got called right then. And I was, I took the LSAT the next time it was available. I went to law school in Chicago to be a public defender. Um, and that's how I ended up. And I get some pushback, um, not a lot, but some pushback 
from some African Americans who take that story and say, you are some sort of great white hope mm. kind of thing, you know, I've heard this story before. And I totally appreciate where that comes from. But the fact is, that's my story. Yeah. Like, that's, that's the truth of what happened to me. And I think it's led me in a direction that God wanted me to be in. Mm. I really do. And so it just is what it is. And I, of course, I don't, I mean, I'm, I try to do everything I can racial equality wise, you know, I, I support all of those things, but what I'm really interested in is fundamental justice for everyone. Mm. I'm fascinated by the story for so many reasons, but one of the things that strikes me that I didn't know before is that you had that experience at, at 35. So you were already an established person. Right. Yeah. I was a teacher. And then after that, I went to the Peace Corps and then I got out of the Peace Corps. I was sort of looking for something to do. Um, 9-11 had just happened, so the economy wasn't great. It was difficult to find a job. And so in that sort of sense, I was open to receive something new, you know. I mean, my heart was, I think, in a, in a, a vulnerable place. Mm. Which is encouraging. I, I, I turned 40 just a couple months ago, and I feel like my life is in so much transition. And just so I'm thinking a lot these days about how you know, you, you, people can, you do have these formative experiences as an adult where, I mean, it is possible to change course and to start over. I mean, the kind of difference you've made and the work that you're doing now, I just, I don't know, I just find that uniquely encouraging right now <laughs> that that journey didn't begin until then. Right. Well, I knew I was going to be 40, right? I could either be 40 with a law degree or 40 without one. And another way to look at that is I could be 40 with that much student loans or 40 without that much right. student loans. Right. But, you know, I, I, this is what I was supposed to do. Mm. I, I, I sort of believe that the river led me over there. Mm. So, and you were you were already living in? Were you already in Tulsa then? No, I was I was living in Chicago. Oh, in Chicago. Okay. All oh, right. Okay. So, I'd love to talk about. I mean, I've been here three years, and in general, I mean, there are a lot of things that I find interesting, uh, wonderful, perplexing in other ways about Oklahoma. I'm curious about your experience specifically here in terms of the the challenges of practicing law here and I don't like skip to the punchline too quick but especially the work you're doing around mass incarceration and women here I mean is it fair to say Oklahoma is a uniquely challenging place statistically there's a lot of support for the premise that Oklahoma is a particularly challenging place so we have the highest female incarceration rate we're fixing to have the highest male incarceration rate we're building more prisons at a time when nearly every other state are closing them up um, we have resisted most criminal um, justice reforms. We've signed some like lately within the past year, but we've certainly let it go on far longer uh, than even states like Texas have. And Texas is where I'm from. Mm. So, wow. so the question is for me, is not only what can we do to fix it, because there's a lot of models to fix it. There's a lot of, you know, just in the nature of federalism, states have tried things, they, some have worked, some haven't. We have a lot, we have a cornucopia of solutions to choose from. Mm. The question for me is, why is it so much worse in Oklahoma? Because it's, like, it's a lot worse. Like, female incarceration is much, much worse here. Uh, it's twice as bad as the national average. The next uh, state down, I think, is Louisiana, and we're a lot worse than Louisiana. Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama, they have racial problems. They have patriarchy problems. They have all the same problems. What is it about Oklahoma that makes it particularly bad? That's what I've been dwelling on, and that, I think, is a spiritual problem. Yeah, and, I, and I'd love for you to speak to that just in terms of your theological critique of why it is you think, that what, what creates that kind of perfect storm in Oklahoma? I think that the prosperity gospel, if, if you define that as this, 
God blesses followers of Christ who have given their lives to, to Jesus um, in a faithful way. God rewards those people with riches, right? Um, Joel Olstein believes that. Uh, there's just a, a lot of people who believe that. And the corollary to that is that people who are poor are not right with Christ, right? Mm -hmm. People who are addicted aren't right. People who are mentally ill aren't right because God can change all of those things. He can make you wealthy. He can cure your mental illness. He can get you out of addiction. So if you have any of those things that are poverty, mental illness, or addiction, your problem is you're not praying hard enough mm -hmm. and you're on your damn own. Mm -hmm. Well, is that what we want our Christianity to be? Because that's what it's become here. Mm -hmm. And I, it, it, is, it is a justification for human suffering to continue by saying, well, they're just going to have to deal with ourselves. And their children, they're on their own. Mm. I, I think it's an enormous dereliction of our duty as people of not only of faith in, in God, but in faith in, in one another, in our social contract, mm -hmm. to let people down like that and to just say, no, you're just, you just need to try harder to handle your bipolar disorder. No, that's not how the world works. Maybe in the Puritans believe that. So when somebody's cow died, they said, my God, they must have been cheating on their husband. Yeah. And so we need to go hang them. Like stuff like that happened. Yeah. But there's not very much difference between that sort of thing where you blame somebody's, you know, Ill, if the kid gets sick, it's their parents' fault for not being good enough parents, yeah. right? I mean, they used to prosecute people like that. And now we have science and all these sorts of things that should enlighten us and say, no, there are different things other than God's will going on here. But there's a lot of people, like millions of people in Oklahoma, who say, no, God's in charge of everything. They just need to try harder. And it, it the amount of suffering that goes into that, plus the amount of money that we put in incarcerating people and, and doesn't make any sense, that we're not willing to spend it on the front end to have good health care, to have good mental health care, all that sort of things, education, mm -hmm. to make sure that functionally we're okay. We're not willing to spend that money because they could just go to church and get those things. Right. However, we are willing to spend the money on the prisons and putting them in the court system and on district attorneys. And even then, the way that Oklahoma is set up, we fund our court system with fines and costs on those poor people. How, how, how did this... I don't understand how we could do this and then look at ourselves in the mirror without having some sort of, as religious of a people as we are, yeah. without having some sort of theological justification for it. Mm. And um, I think that people have thought it out and have just come to the conclusion that poor people are bad. Mm -hmm. Because if they weren't bad, God would bless them with a better life. Yeah. yeah. Um I have so many questions. You know, it's it's interesting for me, growing, you know, having this Pentecostal charismatic background, but not a background at all with anything kind of directly in that word of faith sphere. And then you come to Tulsa, and of course, this is kind of the mecca of word of faith between the Hagans or Roberts, like all those kinds of things. It's just, it's so interesting to me because uh, I have on occasion met someone who will tell a really redemptive story of coming into faith in that way where they felt like it was really beneficial to them. I feel like I hear exponentially more stories and I hear them every week 
because uh, you know, bottom line, I think, especially like in the word of life, in the word of faith movement, if you, the only thing that you have to do to be disillusioned is be in it for a little while, because if you're there for long. As a human being, you're going to experience profound suffering. Somebody's going to get sick. Somebody's going to die. Something bad's going to happen. And that theology, break is it, it is going to break down. Uh, it, it can't hold up. It's mm-hmm. not built to be sustained. So I feel like I just, I don't know, sometimes I feel like in faith landscape, it's like a Civil War battlefield of people who've had some kind of experience in that world, but they've come out disillusioned, etc. So, And I, 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 I'm, I'm so hearing the critique. What I'm really curious about is, and I'm... Do you feel like it's more because I'm and I, I'm buying it 100. percent Do you think it's more the sense of people who come into contact with that system? Let's see if I can even ask this the right way. Is it more about the way that folks kind of in that word of faith context will then kind of abdicate their responsibility to care for their neighbors, or do you think that there's I don't know that something about that in the water, um, even for people who are disadvantaged in some way that that they that they experience their own disillusionment or their own pain. Like which which direction does that kind of cut, or does it kind of cut both ways? You know, in terms of say more about that so that I, I I'm butchering the question. I'm trying to I'm I'm curious as to you know how much of the of the issue in your mind is um, people within that particular faith circle have no sense of caring for their neighbors versus uh-huh. you know a lot of people have some kind of drive-by experience with, you know, that kind of faith. And, you know, it has kind of disastrous implications for the person. Because, for example, here would be an example. I know a lot of people who I feel like deal with profound, unnecessary shame uh, because they come from that kind of worldview. So then when they do have some kind of human failure, when there is some kind of struggle or addiction, the spiral is so significant from that, precisely because that baggage doesn't help them get out of where they come from. Right. I, th- I don't think that people who are selfish, for example, are naturally attracted to that sort of theology. Maybe that's true. But I think that that sort of theology can lend a, a, a compassionate laziness. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Cause, and, and, and that can have really terrible effects. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Wow. Do, how do you... How do people respond when you give this kind of critique? Like, do people ever, do people push back on it? Like, what do you? I haven't. Um, I haven't had anybody push back. I really haven't. Although I have to say, most of the people that I come into contact with, if they're coming to an event that I'm at or something like that, they sort of self-select. Yeah. So I don't get a lot of what I would really love it to is engage. As a matter of fact, I have. Um, I'm, I'm trying to sort of restart a relationship with a cousin of mine who I used to be really close to in childhood, but. And I'm not sure of his theology, but I, I'm pretty sure he's a, an evangelical and he's a minister in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. And so I'm so one of the reasons, besides the fact that he's my cousin and I love him, love you, John. Um, the, other, the other thing is, is that I really am trying to understand the whole theological thing. Because mm-hmm. I also know that he's a good man, yeah. a compassionate man, a man who walks in faith. And my brother, and I've got two brothers that are, that are the same way, who are deeply religious, very Christian, good men. And so I, I'm, it's not an indictment of sure. Christianity, but there's a certain brand of Christianity that makes people mean. And that kind's really popular here. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's puzzling too, especially when you, because that's the thing I can never get my head around, is when you meet people who in terms of their personal practice, um, they might love their neighbors relatively well. They might uh, be, be kind, gentle, tender, and yet still systemically embrace a structure wholeheartedly 
that demonizes, that vilifies, that punishes, that is me. That that's the thing. I, I you know, people who kind of like they they're they care about missions or something on one hand right. and give to that, and then on the other hand, <laughs> so actively support these things that are that are deeply oppressive. I'm just fascinated by the idea in general that bad theology kills, harms, it does. destroys. It absolutely does. You know, because like, some of the stuff I feel like is happening right now, and I could be wrong about this, but you had like in the 80s and 90s, you had the rise of the religious right, and there's a particular kind of message there. But you know what? I feel like a lot of what's happened in the last, more, say more 20, 25 years kind of post that, yeah, we still have our version of the religion right. There's still Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. who banned me from liberty. That was a fun story last year. Um, another, 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 Good another for story you, for another time. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, so that, that certainly still exists. But I feel like a lot of what happened is that in a lot of evangelical spaces, the message became so apolitical. Like, we just want to tell people Jesus is Lord. We want them to sign a card. And the content of your faith has nothing to do with mm-hmm. anything that happens in, in the real world. Politics has to do with how the real world is ordered. We don't want politics to get in here and get in the way of people hearing the message we want to have as big of a church as we possibly can so what it seems to me has happened in a lot of cases is that very apolitical stance opened up room to where now if the only thing matters is you know what you think about jesus whether or not you believe jesus is you know god and some kind of theological claim then it opens up all kinds of room for all these other voices and influences to come, you know, because because to me, there's just no other explanation for how it is that, especially right now in North America, that people are so okay with what they claim to believe about Jesus and God and Scripture, whatever, having just no alignment whatsoever with how they think about how the world's supposed to be ordered. Right, and I, you know, there seems to be this divorce between our, and and maybe this this goes to my own theology. For me, there is not a break between my capacity to love people and my capacity to love God. Yeah. That is the same thing. And I can't do one without the other. Yeah. Not just because in, in my theology, not just because God tells me to love people. It's because if I don't love people, I am not loving God. Mm. Because loving people, you know, in, in the world is a form of loving God. Like that's one of the ways that I, I, it's the only way that I can express my love to God, right? And if I leave out the people and say, no, it's just me and God, what do I, what's my religion for, right? (laughs) Like if my religion doesn't make me more capacity and more, I mean, more compassion and more loving and, you know, doesn't, it doesn't move me to reduce suffering, then what good is my religion? If it only divides me from my neighbor, and and it kills me that like literally that's what he says the big law is love your neighbor and if you have a theology that divides you from it then yeah. I don't know how people work that out yeah. but I'm in the I'm in the making relationships better with neighbors not worse and it doesn't matter to me whether my neighbor is a Muslim sure. you know I love them any I like you love them because sure. they're, they're a person like. That shouldn't be a radical idea. No. <laughs> no. I mean, I know it was a radical idea 2,000 years ago, but we've had a whole bunch of time to like really get used to it. And still, you know, it's all like, oh my gosh, really? Loving everybody? No, the man said love everybody.
talk about having this much time to just kind of live with that message. I mean, I've thought about it before, but it's just landing in a different way right in this moment. Think, think about Oklahoma in particular. So we've got a place where the faith context is everything to people. And, you know, almost everybody, it seems, uh, at least has some historical connection to a church and the faith that deep in the water. And then you've got highest rates in America for incarceration for women. And then, like... The, some of the most problematic in terms of education, like the, like just just the weight of that landing right now of how is it possible that in a place where there's so much faith and so much talk about faith that you end up exactly at, like at the bottom. We if if we were really as Oklahomans as faith based and uh, as Christian in whatever sort of way you want to take that word as we say we are, then our preschools should be filled with abundance of toys and of games and of books and of all this. We should be embarrassed of the riches that we put on, you know, not just the poor, but on and the children and on people who need help. Like they, that this this state should should have an embarrassment of riches mm -hmm. for those people. Mm -hmm. And instead, what the hell has happened to us? Yeah. You know, so that we say, well, you know, teachers don't deserve that much. And oh, good grief. Or, you know, we're going to close hospitals in rural districts to save money, even though they know that, you know, the ambulance is going to have to drive further and people are going to die. Yeah. But we're just going to say okay with that because it's going to save us some money. Like, when, when did that become the gospel? Because it's at, because that sort of thing where this, this strict libertarianism, this uh, laissez-faire uh, view of capitalism that's so popular here, of small government being no government, of government being evil, of any sort of welfare that we take care of as, as being a wrong, um, I don't know how in the world we got to, to that backwards view of, of goodness. Yes. Do you know? Since you brought both of those up there, do you see a direct connection between the issues here with education and mass incarceration? Like, what, 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 what if yeah. any do you feel like is the connection? You can, there? I haven't, I'm not an actuary, but I have heard from reliable people that you can uh, figure out how many prisons you need to build by, by looking at uh, fifth grade reading scores. Wow. So you just project into the future and you'll know. Um, statistically on how that's how that's going on the dropout rate as well so yeah it all goes to the same thing and people can tell you know if you have a school that is underfunded and then you drive 10 miles and you have a school that is fantastic and you look at the population of the people going to the underfunded school they know about the other one it's not as if you know what kind of having such a stark divide between the haves and the have-nots that we have ended up with creates an enormous amount of, I think, justifiable resentment on the part of people who don't have very much. Mm. They, they are resentful of, of a lot of, because they, they pay in, but they don't get, mm -hmm. you know, and then they're looked down upon and they're also policed differently. Mm. And it, it does, it's not conducive to safety. It's not conducive to anything. It, it seems like, you know, if you look at the system, whether it's criminal justice system or education system, but the criminal justice system is what I know about. If you look at that, of our rate of mass incarceration, how we police the poor, all of that, the only thing that I can figure out to make sense of it is that people want poor people to suffer. If that's what the goal is, we've built a great system for that. Um, I can't think of another just do we want uh, to keep people safe? Well, this isn't the system for that. Do we want to save money? This isn't the system for that. You know, do we want to respect one another? Not the system for that. So if you're not worried in safety or in money, uh, 
and the system just makes people suffer, it's hard for me to conclude anything else, that this system wants people to suffer, but only certain kinds of people. I mean, one of the examples that I use a lot is, one of the things they do is, this isn't just Oklahoma, a lot of, a lot of places do this. The police will sit in an area that's poor and they will pull over and they'll sit next to um, a stop sign in their car. Anybody who rolls the stop sign in this residential neighborhood will get pulled over um, and then as part of their getting a ticket for the rolling the stop sign, they'll be asked for their car to be searched. And then if they say yes, then, I mean, you get lots and lots of, of arrests like this. So you get drunk drivers, you get people who had drugs in their car, you get you know, people who had warrants out for failure to pay or for whatever. The deal is, is they don't do that outside of the country club, where if they had everybody who rolled the stop signs out of the country club and pulled them over, they would also get a lot of drunk drivers, especially people coming off the golf course and all that kind of stuff. They'd get really great cocaine and, I mean, all sorts of great drugs. But they don't do that. And even if they did do that, it wouldn't last an hour before somebody made a phone call and it wouldn't, they wouldn't be there and be like, oh my gosh, there's a cop, terrible cop who's harassing people coming out of the country club. It's a big problem. Um, but it's a regular thing in poorer neighborhoods. And so, you know, when I, when I talk to my friends who are police officers, they will say, Jill, what a ridiculous waste of time it would be to go to, to the country club and do that. Because that's not the kind of people that we're trying to catch. Well, Jiminy Christmas, you've just admitted that this isn't about the laws. It's not about drug laws. It's not about drunk driving. It's about patrolling and catching a certain type of person. Yeah. Poor people. Mm. They're always poor, right? Because they don't do this in wealthy neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, it, that's not what the law is. That makes a, a, a law, the law itself a pretext. We're not really interested and people smoking marijuana or using methamphetamines or taking opioids, because rich people do all of that too. What we're interested in really focusing on the type of person who also does that sort of things, and then we'll use the drug laws in order to handle them, yeah. Yeah. right? It's, that's, I think that's where we are. It, there, all the data shows that's exactly where we are, and it's wrong. Yeah. To what extent do you think people are, even we talk about talking friends who are police officers to what extent do you think people are are are, are self-aware or reflective of those realities or are there certain are there certain defense mechanisms are there certain things that people like go to to avoid to avoid that conclusion yes that I, that's the thing is i don't think any of this largely is done maliciously right i think that the cops who do that absolutely think that they're doing the right thing I know, I know that they are. I know they do. I know, I know them, right? They're the same. They're, they're like, this is the places that are dangerous. Um, we're going to, you know, pull these people over and do all these sorts of things. The thing is, is that the drug laws, this, the same percentage of poor people do drugs as wealthy people. The same, then this is, might be news to some people, the same uh, proportion of uh, people on the north side of Tulsa sell drugs as people on the south side of Tulsa too. Like if you go to a, a wealthy high school, there's wealthy teenage drug dealers in there, right? But those people are much less likely to get caught than the 15-year-old poor drug dealer, yeah. right? So once that starts, so once you have that difference of, okay, we're going to basically contain some neighborhoods and then the police are going to patrol other neighborhoods, the ones that are contained 
and they start to arrest people, then they get records, then their parents go to jail, then their fathers can't get a job, then all of those sorts of things. And those neighborhoods only become worse. So you have a group of brave, good and decent people who I believe policies are making the situation worse and worse and worse. And they keep doing it more, trying to make it better. And Jill, after someone, after someone is arrested, what does that inequality look like on the other side of the criminal justice system in terms of laws, policy, like once a person actually goes to so this, And this is huge. So once you're arrested, then they set up money bond. You, you bond out. Well, if you're poor, you can't bond out. So say you get arrested for having meth in your pocket. If you're wealthy or you've got enough money, your family can get it together. You bond out and you go back to work or do whatever you want. If you don't have the money, then you sit in jail two or three weeks waiting for a court date. The only way you're going to get out is to plead guilty to it, okay? If you want to go to trial, then you can sit in jail for a year. Well, who, you know, these people have kids. They're going to, they arrest mothers, don't let them see their kids, and then say, hey, do you want to go to trial? You can stay in jail for another year. Whether you did it or not, whether, believe me, whether your attorney says, look, you have a case, you need to go to trial, because I've said that to people, and they're like, look, I'll, I'll plead to anything. I just need to get out. Um, then you're setting up a system that's money-based to get out of jail that people with money don't have to worry about at all. People with money, people who I take care of in private practice, they're like, well, I don't know, I'm going back to work. I mean, I can go to trial. I can not go to trial. What should I do? They're not faced sitting uh, you know, across from me in orange saying, I haven't, I've lost my job. You know, I've been here for a month. I haven't seen my kids. I don't have my apartment anymore. My, I've missed two car payments now. That My car is gone. If I don't get out, I'll lose everything, mm. even more than I already have. Mm. So uh, wealthy people don't face that at all. Yeah. And 80% in Tulsa County, 80% of the felonies filed um, in Tulsa County are filed against people who have a public defender. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Oof. Do you... Um... One of the, one of the things I feel like I just you know beat my head against the desk a lot about these days. It's such a. I know we've always been polarized in a way, but it feels like a uniquely polarized time for somebody like me. My understanding of faith, um, how we think about the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised is is everything in terms of you know how we think about God, faith. All, part of what I struggle with these days is when you know that people aren't making those kind of decisions consciously or they're not aware of some of these implications systemically and all that it's i feel like it's so difficult right now to figure out how to how to talk about those things how to get that kind of information out there in a way that that brings people along as opposed to alienates and i know sometimes you know we're not responsible for how you know you know outcomes necessarily but i'm just curious even in your life like what that looks like now, like how is it possible for those of us who, who are stirred up about these things to talk to our friends and neighbors, to talk to that cousin, aunt, uncle, who we know at, at heart, we see a lot of goodness there, but just because of um, kind of where they are worldview wise, where they live, a sense of isolation with other people very much kind of, who are, who are very much of their same socioeconomic class, whatever, just don't have the, seem to have the resources to grapple with a different story? Like, where do, you, where do you even begin there? I don't know the answer to that. I, I figured that my minister might know, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, because I feel like one of my personal challenges is that I come at it not just with a legal 
view. Like, I think that there's all sort of constitutional problems with what's going on. But what breaks my heart and what motivates me to, like, bang my head up against the wall is a moral issue. Yeah. Like, it's just, this is just wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when I come at it saying to my friends that, that are cops, for example, or prosecutors, what you're doing is immoral, that automatically is separating me from them. But I don't know another way. To, sure. I mean, even if I, like, try and go around that that's what i'm really saying yeah. right yeah. and they know that and i and i i don't know i don't know how to do it with more love i really don't and i am so open to suggestions mm -hmm. because unless we because i don't think that they're bad people and believe me my clients mostly aren't bad people either i mean we're arrested in tulsa about ten thousand people a year just that the public defender's office takes care of and there's not ten those those aren't ten thousand bad people mm -hmm. right just like the, all the cops that we have, those aren't, those aren't all bad cops. Those aren't all bad prosecutors. They're, just even, they're not bad legislators who created this horrible mess, right? So maybe for me, I should drop my moralizing. But then again, it's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. So, man, I don't know. Well, I think it's, it's, it is your vocation and calling, number one. But I do wonder in general if... Um, it feels like all too often, and maybe I think this might be especially true for communities of faith, that there's such an emphasis on a certain kind of peacemaking. Because, of course, peacemaking requires conflict, <laughs> but, but kind of a superficial peacemaking. You know, if everybody comes in with a disposition, well, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation with family at Thanksgiving. I just wonder, again, if that's just like the thing I was saying about kind of the radical apolitical thing in a lot of evangelical circles. That's not part and parcel of the same issue in some ways. Like, because we, in some cases, people don't feel permission to talk about these things, to have the hard conversation that might be a little bit confrontational. Right. Then there's no, there's no space then for any kind of forward movement. I don't know how to, you know, the thing is, I, I, to kind of shift topics a little bit, but I, I'll bring it back around. Um, but on a personal level, I'm gay. And it is really, and I've been out since the late 80s, right? So a long time. So in a personal sense, I've been really hurt by evangelicals, mm -hmm. evangelicalism, you, that whole thing. I grew up in a, in a small town in Texas, so it's just not, I, I've been hurt by that. Mm -hmm. And then I see, but I also at the same time also knew within my family and with other people in my family that it didn't come necessarily from a space of hating me. It came from a space of, I love you, but I believe these certain things to be true, mm. right? And I say that to, um, in some sort of ways, I say that to a lot of people in power, mm. right? I love you, but I think that these things are true, that everybody should be treated equally and policed equally, and within the, the justice system, that law should apply to everybody the same, no matter how much money they have. Um, and if you aren't following that, then I'm going to try and hold you accountable for it because I think it's wrong. Um, and I, in, in my best moments, I give them that sort of space to, to, to feel the same way, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and then I have to sort of check myself and say, Am I, are you so sure of, of this, that, that this is the hill you want to die on, mm. right? Because I, I used to teach and before I went to law school, and I had a student come up to me after class one day and I didn't tell my kids I was gay but you can if you're looking at me you're probably gonna you know go it's probably gonna come up probably the first five seconds you meet me anyway so the kid comes up to me after class and she says uh she asked me about 
something about homosexuality. And I said, well, what do you think? And she said, Miss Webb, if I'm wrong about gays being bad, I'm wrong about everything. Dear Lord. Right? What a quote. And I'm like, that was the hill she was willing to die on, mm. for sure, because, like, that, and it's true. It, it was the bedrock of, holy, oh, my God. And I think that sometimes, you know, that's what I'm asking the police to do, right? If they're wrong about, you know, sitting at the stop sign in, in neighborhoods that they consider to be dangerous and pulling people over, then maybe they're wrong about a lot of things. Mm. Wow. But it is interesting, though, how... Just a hand, and, and in that way, her comment was shockingly self-aware. Like the, the extent of which these handful of ideas really can be linchpins. That like yes, it, it is a house of cards in a way. If I right. if I lose that, if this person is not other anymore, if 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 I don't have a them, we don't know who we are. We exactly. don't know who us is. Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Do you? I'm curious when you talked about just kind of your own experience of growing up in Texas and all that. If those, if some of those folks in your life as you've been on this journey and clearly your your work it very much is a calling and a vocation and it's all about morality and justice and have some of those people gone on the journey with you like have some of them changed in in relationship over time or was it the kind of thing where you know after that shift personally some of those relationships family wise just kind of fell away and that's not too no 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 no, no um that's not too intrusive i think that you know one of the good things about maybe age lending people toward wisdom uh, is that we become more forgiving and loving of one another, whether it's our family or not. And so, uh, and I have also noticed that that has been more having to do with me opening my heart than anything else of me. Cause you know, once I feel, once I felt judged and put down, then I separate, I wanted to separate myself sure. and say, well, I'll just do my own thing. And then, but that leaves me without family. And that breaks my heart. And I have a daughter and I want her to know, like, this is your people, right? So when I reached out and I'm like, hey, my daughter and I, we want to like, can we be with you? And they're like, well, of course you can. Where have you been? You know, sort of this weird prodigal child sort of deal. And I came, sort of came home and kind of in a, in a large sort of way. I and mean, we didn't have a big discussion about it. And I still don't think that we agree on some fundamental things theologically, but that's okay. We're just, you know, together in love. And... Um, as tried as that sounds, God dang, the older I get, the more fundamentally true it seems. Yeah, yeah. How old's your daughter? Uh, she'll turn eight next month. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. When you, even the kind of issues that you, you know, let's work on but giving your life to, how does having a daughter inform all of that? Like, how does that, is that, has that shaped your perspective in some way when you think about her future? And I want her to be proud of me, mm. right? So when I, when she, when somebody... Uh, mentions that people are in jail, my daughter will say, you know, most of them are there because they're poor. Wow. Right? So because she knows. And so part of it is that um, I, I feel a greater sense. And this is this doesn't necessarily lead me to great action all the time, so I'm not trying to come across as holier than thou at all. But I am a lot more aware of my choices in the sense of I know I'm an example for her. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know what kind of world I'm going to leave her. My mom didn't know what kind of world she was leaving me. She couldn't have guessed it. I, I just want, I want her to remember me, um, with pride. Yeah. That's beautiful. Do you even talking about not knowing what kind of world you'll leave her and 
it is such a strange and interesting time. And even again, some of the things we talked about in terms of being in Oklahoma, where there's a lot within systems and structures. I mean, I even think of that in kind of New Testament language sometimes is like principalities and powers that like these structures that are that are kind of actively oppressed. And there's even a spiritual energy to that, a, a dynamism that's very unhealthy and, and disturbing. Like in the midst of all those things, when, because you know, the way I see your work, honestly, is, um, and it's funny because since I, I did grow up just Pentecostal enough to where a lot of language around angels and demons and all that, but what everybody does with that in kind of a, in a literal way, I mean, I really do feel like you're, you're on the front lines where you're, you're, you're opposing these structural forces and you're like in the fight. And uh, I'm just curious, what kind of sustains you in that? Like what gives, what gives you hope in the midst of all the things that you see that surely could, uh, could, could bring temptation to despair? What keeps you hopeful and keeps you going in the midst of all of that? The people that I help or I try to help um, are brave and are doing the best they can. I mean, one of, one of the people I'm in relationship with that I'm trying to help, she, she owes fines and costs. Um, she had a, a, a marijuana charge a few years ago. That's really the only trouble she's been in. And she also raises a son who's sick and handicapped. And so she can't, she she makes total uh, about $500 a month that she lives on with her son. That's their total income. Um, so she had these fines and costs and couldn't pay them. So she was uh, timing when she would turn herself into the jail because she can't pay. And so she knew warrants were going to go out. So she would time when she was turned herself in uh, with a time that somebody could take care of her son. I mean, how much do we need that money? Wow. Right? And plus, we're paying for her to be in jail. And she's willing to do it. She's like, well, I did have marijuana on me and I don't have any money, so I guess I'm just going to have to go to jail. I mean, they recognize that it's wrong. I mean, how, how could you not? But, you know, they're not, they're doing the best they can. They're trying to, to follow the law in this sort of sense the best they can. And I, in the sense of if they had the money, they would pay it. And they don't. If they had the money, they would bond out and they don't. Um, there's a lot of strength from their strength. Mm. And they're, you know, when somebody's sitting across from you and they're like, can you help me? And they're in terrible situations and I can do something. How can I not do something? Yeah. I mean, I don't think that that's that extraordinary. Mm. I think a lot of people are like that. It's just that most people don't have jobs and aren't in situations where they have that opportunity. Mm. But I think if they were given that opportunity, the, the initiative to try and help one another, um, I don't think that that's, I don't think that's a rare quality. When, um, I, I agree with you. I, I do think a lot of people have that kind of quality, but for those folks who don't have your background, your expertise, who aren't doing the work, but who, cause I can really imagine, um, some particular listeners, I think are going to hear it this way. I think, I think there'll be people who are going to hear it, who are going to have their hearts broken open and, but would say, honestly, Hey, I've never really thought about incarceration before I've never thought about these issues for somebody like who because for all the things again you can be discouraged about I do feel like there are a lot of people who are being awakened right now I think there's a lot of things things that have been in darkness that are coming into light a lot of things that people were ashamed to say in public before that they seem not to be ashamed to say <laughs> now and as much as that's horrifying in some ways I also feel like there's a lot of people for whom 
just coming awake right now. For, for anybody who's feeling that or experiencing that around these issues, but to have the question of where do I start? Where do I learn more? Like, like how to, what, what to read, a documentary to watch, something I can do in my community. Like what's, what's a good place to start for people who just want to engage constructively for the first time? Watch 13th. Yeah. It's a great documentary. Um, and then there's a lot of people within that documentary who have made separate stuff. So watch 13th. It's available on Netflix. Um, it's a incredible uh, documentary basically outlining what's happened to mass, mass incarceration. I would also, if you've got 15 minutes, go listen to uh, Brian Stevenson's TED Talk. Yeah. Um, Let's Talk About Injustice. Unbelievable. Um, there are smart, committed people who, like I said, the solutions are out there. Um, the solutions are out there. And there are lots of good people to work on. But if you're just getting started and this, this is breaking your heart open, go watch 13th. Yeah. And then, and also remember that there's district attorney's races, there are sheriff's races, uh, there are races for judges um, all across the country, but especially going on right now in Oklahoma and in Tulsa, and those races are important. And so go to the meetings when they're having their debates or email the people and say, are you trying to put more people in prison or fewer people in prison? And if it's fewer people, what's your plan? And if they don't have a plan, then you don't vote for them. And I'm, I'm curious what you say about this too, when especially as people are being more attentive to that part of the conversation, it seems like there's a certain there's a certain kind of code language that happens with a lot of that too. Tough on crime, like <laughs> wh- like what does that mean, right? Right. <laughs> it's like saying Chicago, and you're actually talking about black people. You're right. Um, right. Right. So people are like, well, what about Chicago? And it's like, you know, there's all that's a whole hidden message thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and we just need to make our own. We all, I think that the criminal justice work that's being done, uh, no matter where it is, is open for volunteers, believe me. You know, no matter what your community you're in, you can help. If you're, you know, uh, in the middle of the high crime area who is getting policed differently than the South Side, you can help. And there's organizations that are already doing that. And they don't need a lot of education. They just need access to change, right? But if you're one of the people who's rolling the stop sign out of the country club, then watch 13th and you can make a tremendous difference because the politicians give a big damn about what you think and and where your money goes. And so that person who's not getting stopped has an enormous amount of influence, potential influence, and in my opinion, once they're awakened, has a responsibility to do that. That's so good. Well, thank you so much, not only for the time, but I'm just so grateful for your work, for your witness, for your light. It's so inspiring to me and and makes me feel more hopeful. So um, thank you. It's I'm been, just grateful. It's a blessing to have been here. Thank yeah. you. We're very honored and um, certainly just, you know, just excited here. Uh, you know, I'll close with one more question. I wasn't going to ask this, but I felt like uh, if, if this is not uh, out of bounds either, I've gathered, are you, I know that you had ran at one point uh, to be a judge. Are there kind of, and I'm asking this for, admittedly from a hopeful place because I so love what you're saying, your heart on this politics in the future. Is there? Yes, I, I would, I, I'm not going to run this cycle. Of course, we, that just happened. But if if things line up um, four years from now, I I would consider running for something again. But I don't know if I'd run for judge. But depending on who wins, I, I, in my mind, I've thought about running for Congress. 
I'd vote for you for anything. Let's just be clear <laughs> about this. <laughs> Jill will for whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I, I don't know. It's a, that's a, lo a lot of things have to happen between now and four years from now, and who knows who knows what our country's going to be like. But, yeah. I, Hopefully I, we'll still be here. <laughs> I am very interested in, uh, you know, the thing is, there's a lot of honor in politics. Yeah. There's honor in public service, and the whole idea that we've, gotten around that anybody who wants to be in it is stupid and corrupt and anybody is in it is stupid and corrupt is false sure. and um it would be a privilege to run so that's so great well thank you again so much for the time joe really honored to have you here thanks i hope you enjoy today's podcast like an lp each episode is divided into side a and side b side a could be a sermon a conversation with a guest but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of Side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.